Dotnet Rocks episode 749 with guest Phil Hack. Recorded live Friday, February 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Franklin and Richard and Campbell and Phil and Hacked. <laughs> All six of us. It's a it's a podcast cornucopia. Uh, Richard, what's up with you, man? It's, uh, you know, alternating snowing and raining here today, so I don't know. It's, I'm definitely waiting for the summer to come. Let's yes. just put it that way. I think you have a song like that. I do, yeah. Hey, uh, it's time for Better Know Framework. All right. And uh, in talking to our guest before the show, in the pre-show banter, we discovered that uh, there's this really great post that Phil did a long time ago, not a long time ago, but a while ago, at tinyurl.com slash hidden ASP net gems, and there's no period there, hidden ASP net gems, three hidden extensibility gems in ASP.net, and this is from May 2010, talking about a few new extensibility APIs in ASP.net 4 that live the hermit lifestyle away from the public eye. They're not exactly hidden, but they're not well publicized, and one is pre-application start method attribute. The attribute allows you to have code run way early in the ASP.NET pipeline as an application starts up. I mean way early, even before application underscore start. This happens to also be before code in your app code folder has been compiled, assuming you have any code in there. So there's also uh, something that we released as a NuGet package called Web Activator. And that builds on top of this attribute. It makes use of this attribute, but it extends it even further and gives you pre-application start, post-application post start, and it allows you to register multiple pieces of code to run pre-application start, whereas this one will only allow you to register one method in an assembly to run pre-application start. Awesome. And that leads us to buildprovider.registerbuildprovider. As you might guess, if one of the key scenarios for the previously mentioned feature is to allow registering build providers, ASP.NET better darn well allow you to register them programmatically. So prior to ASP.NET 4, the only way to register a custom build provider was via the build providers node within webconfig. Now you can register, but now you can register them programmatically with a call to the new buildprovider.register build provider method. And then, we come to buildmanager.addReferencedAssembly, another new method in ASP.NET 4, allowing you to add an assembly to the application's list of referenced assemblies. This is equivalent to adding an assembly to the assemblies section of webconfig. So comes in handy when you're registering a build provider. So is this, is this just sort of like the inner sanctum knowledge that everybody knows, or did you actually go spelunking for a solution and find this, Phil? <laughs> This is not, these are not libraries that you typically use every, in day to day usage. They're more for people who are writing their own little extensibility layers or, uh, you know, deep, deep sort of stuff on top of ASP.NET. And so that's, uh, that's how I learned about it because 
some of this stuff, I believe I was uh, the one who tried to get it into the framework. I mean, I didn't code it up, but I said, oh, we should make this happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a need for it at the time, and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> And and you know soon some of this stuff will hopefully uh, get superseded by even better things. Like I mentioned, Web Activator um, builds on top of pre-application start method, and then you know build providers are pretty interesting. But I think uh, uh, David Ebo had a really interesting blog post about using um, the upcoming C Sharp managed compiler. Uh, why am I uh, Roslyn? And then he had a follow-up blog post where. Uh, he pointed out, well, Roslyn's in the future, but we live in the present. There's also the mono.cecil compiler, yeah. and he was able to get that created as a NuGet package. Wow! So if you install that, that allows you to dynamically compile C-sharp code and run that. And that, I think, is a much better approach than even using build providers. All right. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk some more about this when we actually have you on the show in a few minutes. But first, there's an email that Richard needs to read. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. This is your intro stuff. Sorry, guys. <laughs> get get, get control of your guests there, man. What are you doing? <laughs> well, you know what? That, that's what the editor's for, right? You just splice that bit, move it later. It sounds natural. <laughs> no, it's just much more fun this way. We're going to yes. leave it all in. So We're Richard, not going to edit any of that. <laughs> who's, sure. talk, who's talking to us? Uh, you may know this name, Orin Eeny. Never heard of him. Sent us an email. Sent it to you and me and Keith Brown about uh, episode 744, which was the show where we talked to Keith about using RavenDB together with SQL Server. Right. Uh, and since RavenDB was written by Oren, I guess he's qualified for an opinion. <laughs> and again, another person I do not expect to be funny. Yeah. But. Oh, he can be very funny. Hi. Just finished listening in. It was a great show. And a note to Carl, debugging heavily multi-threaded programs has several levels. The easiest level is, oh my God, it sucks. (laughs) And it gets exponentially worse from there. (laughs) Oh, Orid. And now he goes on to some really interesting points that he basically errata for the show because he's Orin and he wants things to be right. Yeah. So, uh, some points. Uh, when Keith was talking about getting an error on read, he was actually talking about a replication conflict that happens when you're running over the WAN. If you have a server in China and a server in Boston, they are both using master map replication. If both servers write to the same document, you're going to get a conflict, which will happen on the next replication cycle. Uh, RavenDB supports optimistic concurrency, which will give you an error when you try to write a document that has been modified, quote, behind your back. Yeah. But that is assuming that you're writing to the same server. That's an important distinction. Yeah. The cost of ensuring consistency over the WAN is too big. Imagine that every write has to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Since you <laughs> don't do geo-split on your database for fun, there is usually a strong correlation between the data that you write and the location you are writing. And it is often the case that each data center will only write to typical documents, thus avoiding conflicts by having them both write to the same docs. You can configure RavenDB to resolve such replication conflicts automatically, for example, by merging the documents according to your business logic or selecting the latest one, etc., when Keith is talking about getting duplicates from documents collections, the likely reason is it is usually be that someone updates the document in question, therefore it is moved to the head of the list again. RavenDB provides a stable way to query documents based on their update time, but obviously if you have updates during the read, you may get this twice. This is expected and by design and part of the common problem of how do you read while people are writing. Totally fair. Yeah. In RavenDB, readers don't block writers and writers don't block readers. 
If you are touching a document that is currently being modified in a transaction, it will give you a committed version, and only when the transaction is committed, the new document will be visible to the other transactions. Welcome to users. the new show that we're producing called Orin's Emails. Yes. One more. <laughs> That said, if you access a document that is currently being modified in a transaction, we will give you the committed version, but we set up a flag that tells you that it's already been modified. You can choose whether to accept this or to wait for the transaction to commit. Hmm. Um, I don't know what to say. This, yeah, thanks you, for the info. Yeah, and Orin's obviously deeply immersed in database lore. This reads just like the rule set for SQL Server in so many things. Hmm. That's interesting, so, huh? Yeah, very interesting for me to get his viewpoint on how RavenDB works when you get down to the nitty-gritty of solving these kinds of problems. And mm. uh, obviously, he's thought about it, he's worked on it, and he knows how it works because he built it. Yeah. And uh, I guess we got to send a mug to Israel. Absolutely. So, Oren.net rocks a mug on its way to you because I suspect you don't have one. If you'd like a mug, you can send us an email at .net rocks at franklins.net or write a comment on the website at .net rocks.com. Hey, Richard, it's almost time for NDC. Oh, yes, the Norwegian Developers Conference. Yeah, it's coming up here in June, June 6th to 8th, with pre-conference workshops June 4th and 5th. Where do you see the roster? The cost is $2,000 US. Which is 10,900 kroner. And you can see a list of speakers if you go to ndcoslo.com slash speaker. I know you and I will be there. We will be. We'll be recording shows like Mad like we always do. It's one of the best speaker rosters of any conference or anywhere in the world. And it's not a huge show. If you really want to get a chance to sit and chat with a guy like Aral or uh, Dan North, this is your best shot. It's a great show for that. NDCOslo.com. Yeah. And before we officially introduce Phil, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as our guests. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library of videos. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on web development with over 20 courses on ASP.NET development and 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming. Try it today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. And now, the illustrious Phil Hack, that's two A's and a CK. Yes, it's pronounced Hack. Works at GitHub, finding ways to make it better for .NET and Windows developers everywhere. Prior to GitHub, he was a senior program manager at Microsoft, responsible for shipping ASP.NET, MVC, and NuGet, among other projects. These projects were released under open source licenses and help serve as examples of the open source model for shipping software to other teams at Microsoft. Phil is co-author of the popular professional ASP.NET MVC series and regularly speaks at conferences around the world. He's also made several appearances on technology podcasts such as .NET Rocks, Hansel Minutes, Herding Code, and the official jQuery podcast. Welcome back, Phil Hack. Thanks, guys. I'm I'm surprised you read all that. I thought I was sending you that for the website, not for <laughs> reading it. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. People need to know. And it wasn't that long. It's not as long as Oren's email. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, 12 minutes into the show, and we're just getting to the content. So actually, no, the, this show has been – the intro had more content in it than some shows we do. <laughs> well, guys, it's been nice talking to you. Yeah, it's um, been fabulous. Thank you, Phil. Yeah. 
Thanks for having me on the show. So I think I called this show, You Don't Work at Microsoft. I think all you need to say is yes, and then you're done. And we're done. <laughs> That's So correct. I think the last time I saw you, we were at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, and it was three o'clock in the morning, and I just woke up because that's what time I got up in Malmo because I never really acclimated. And I go out to the lobby to get a coffee and there's a bunch of people drinking beer and talking very loudly in the lobby about passionately about software development. And I believe you were in that group, were you not? I was indeed. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's a really cool thing to go to these conferences all over the world and you know, people that we listen to and talk to and read their blogs are just hanging out at three o'clock in the morning, having a beer or whatever, and talking about uh, talking about development, talking about technology. Yeah, that was a fun time. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, you and Richard were there. Uh, I was sitting next to Sebastian Lamla, who's yeah. uh, always quite a character, and um, there's Gary in front of me and. Uh, Oh man, I can't even remember everyone else. Andreas, I think, was there for the Nancy guy. Yeah, and I think Simon Peyton Jones was there too. We had a really great conversation with him. It's just a just a great combination of minds. All yeah, and that's of... a, that's a really great co- conference as well. Yeah. So, so what are you doing at GitHub, man? What are you doing over there? What do you guys uh, do anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, we spread internet memes around the world yeah. with animated GIFs. And uh, <laughs> so it's a little site called github.com. Yeah. And we host Git projects there and provide a place for people to collaborate on their source code. Uh, the sort of motto for GitHub is social coding. And that's one of the big aspects of it is it makes it really easy for people to uh, work well together with other people on their source code. So if you are just a, a developer who wants to, you've written some code, you want to share it, but you don't necessarily want to lose control over it, can you um, can you put stuff up on GitHub and still maybe change your mind later and say, no, I'm going to turn this into a commercial product? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, the, th- the thing about turning code into a commercial product is when you write code, you, by default, are the copyright holder of the code. Mm-hmm. Now, you, have the, you always have the option to license the code to other people to use in a way that they see fit. And, yeah. and the license you choose is up to you. But at some point, you could decide that, well, I'm going to um, you know, take this code and from now on, I'm going to not give out the code or you know, whatever you want. You can't retroactively do that. So if you've already given out code under permissive license, mm-hmm. you can't say, hey, I want you all to give me back that copy of the code. Right. What you can do is say, well, I'm going to not give out the changes for the next version and I'm right. going to make it proprietary. Or you can continue to give out the code and still make a business out of it if you or a commercial product out of it. It's uh, really up to you. Uh, sometimes... A lot of people don't understand how copyright and licensing works, but when you are the copyright holder, you can pretty much do whatever the heck you want with your code. Right. And and it all you said the magic word. It all depends on the licenses. And we've we've done shows on on the different license uh, options for software developers and for open source. Um, but it's been so long. Maybe we ought to just sort of revisit the main uh, options that we have for open source licenses. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about all licenses, right? So, all right, sure. If, if you don't specify a license, typically what you'll say is copyright, your name, all rights reserved. And that's basically proprietary. That's, this is my code. You can't look at it. You can't copy it. 
Right. Um, even if you can see it for some, like if I show it to you, you can't make use of it. So there's the the most closed you can be. Mm-hmm. So then there's the licenses like GPL, and GPL has the reciprocity clause in it, which means that um, if you use this code and you make any changes, you're obligated to give out those changes to the code that you make. Right. Um, uh, GPL is not the only license with the reci- reciprocity um, element to it, actually. So, mm. for example, Microsoft has a license called MS-RL, mm-hmm. and it's the Microsoft reciprocity license. And so it has a similar clause. Um, GPL has a stronger clause, though, in that uh, it, it makes reference to the greater work. So if you incorporate it in another work, then the whole work needs to um, abide by that license, whereas I don't believe the Microsoft license has that. Yeah, And then you, you move over and there's this whole class of licenses that a lot of people call the permissive licenses. And these licenses are effectively do whatever the heck you want with the code. I don't care. Just mm. don't just include this license with it. Uh, just don't sue me or I'm withdrawing the license. And many, not all of them have that, but a lot of them are basically if you if you bring a patent suit against me, uh, you no longer are lic- allowed to use this source code, and um, I'm giving you no warranties to this. But other than that, yeah, you know, if you make changes and you don't give out those changes, I don't care. You can put it, you can take the code, put it in a closed commercial product. I don't care. Just don't sue me. <laughs> right. So and and, and the, sorry, and the licenses that fit under those are things like BSD, Apache, MIT, MSPL. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, that's good. I, I I was under the impression that for the longest time Microsoft was really anti GPL, and um, so it's interesting how times have changed. And I, you know, it the fact that you, Rob Connery, and all these guys were doing open source stuff at Microsoft is really telling. And I know that's an old story, but it's really important to to sort of relay that history of how Microsoft well- sort of changed their their approach to open source software. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, but I do want to correct one thing. I would probably say that for the most part, Microsoft still is not friendly to the GPL. Now, disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer and I don't work for Microsoft anymore. Mm-hmm. So if that has changed or whatever, um, it, because GPL doesn't necessarily represent all of open source, right? right. Um, in fact, you know, like if you look at Richard Stallman, he hates the term open source because um, but he hates he everything, different. doesn't he? <laughs> well, he doesn't hate he's, free software. He's cranky, <laughs> Richard. He is a little. He, he does come across <laughs> a little cranky. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's uh, dedicated to his ideals. That's this <laughs> is true in a very passionate manner. Yeah. Yes. And uh, but uh, going back to Microsoft, mm-hmm. I, I think there's been this you know movement, and um, the way I look at it is, I sort of see there's two Microsofts. Or, or there's that there's that famous org chart of major tech companies where right. you know, there's Apple and there's one point and a bunch of pe- flat people under it and Google's like chaos and then there's Microsoft which <laughs> has these little clouds of orgs each pointing a gun at each other yeah <laughs> and I kind of feel like that really is you know so accurate a representation of Microsoft because if you look at like the the org under Sanofsky and and the secrecy under Windows 8, you know, it was yeah. very Jobsian um, how secret they were keeping everything. Mm. And you know, they if you look at their some of the WinRT runtime libraries, you'll look at them and say that looks a lot like jQuery, but it's not jQuery because they rewrote 
effectively jQuery for Windows 8 because they wouldn't touch open source for mm -hmm. whatever reason. So they, they, I feel like, are kind of regressing in that way. Then there's the the goo faction, right, under Scott Guthrie, VP uh, at uh, of Azure platform. And the, that group, which was, you know, I was a part of when I was at Microsoft, and especially the ASP.NET team, has seen a steady progression towards embracing open source. It started with, you know, licensing ASP.NET MVC under the MSPL, which gave everyone permission to basically do whatever the heck they want with the source code. Um, but then it continued on. Um, it, you know, we were one of the first products at Microsoft to include a third-party open source library, a jQuery. Uh, this was a case where it, it, it was particularly interesting because we sunsetted our own Ajax libraries in favor of the clear leader out there. Right. And then there was NuGet, which is uh, something that accepts contributions, but they did it in an interesting way uh, to allow that. They, they handed the code and the IP over to the Outer Curve Foundation, and then they said, you run this project. We're going to incorporate that source code back into our product. Um, and this is something that not a lot of people understand about how open source ships at large companies. Like if you look at Google Chrome and you look at Safari, those products are not open source products, although a lot of people think they are. What they are, they're end products with their own proprietary EULA, but they incorporate open source projects. So Chrome incorporates Chromium and uh, Safari incorporates WebKit. And sometimes those things that they incorporate are licensed under licenses that allow them to do anything they want, even including take their code, relicense it as, as part of another product as long as they keep, you know, as long as they continue to follow the terms of the original license. And so that's how like IBM with Rational and a lot of these large corporations ship open source software, but protect their own, um, uh, their, protect their own license, uh, patents and other intellectual property. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at telerik.com slash justcode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Phil, in a blog post recently, you drew, uh, we're trying to find the spirit of open source by distinguishing open source from open source software. It's a great post at hacked.com. Can you uh, address that a little bit? What do you mean exactly the difference between open source and open source software? So uh, at the time, I was trying to distinguish what a lot of people, what open source software is versus the term open source that I hear a lot of people use. And I was trying to make draw a distinction between what it, I think open source software is, which I feel 
is a definition that you can back by, you know, evidence and the way people use the term open source. And uh, the difference I thought was, well, when people think of open source, they think of uh, collab community collaboration on a project, take backs or accepting contributions and uh, a lot of that. But I actually had an interesting discussion with uh, Miguel de Casa, who, um, as you guys know, has a, is a really funny guy and also has a very long history in open source. And I had a follow-up post where I sort of realized that actually those two terms, I, I may not have been right in just trying to distinguish those two terms, that uh, his point was open source has never meant accepting contributions. It's always been about licenses. It's always been about the freedom to do what you want, need to. Uh, the freedom to look at, modify, and redistribute source code without fear of legal recriminations. Right. So um, it didn't give you the right to force somebody to take your changes. And uh, and so the term that he came, uh, coined, because I was like, oh, you know what I think people are doing is they're sort of associating open source with crowdsourcing. Right. And he said his term was um, he liked that I liked better was open and collaborative development models. Okay. So open source is, you know, the thing you're producing, you know, what's the, what rights are you giving people? So if you just toss some code up on GitHub under an open source license, you can call it open source, even if you just never touch it again, because other people can take that code and they can change it and they can even create a collaborative community around their fork of it if they want, yeah. because you gave them the license. And mm. uh, if Whereas if you have an open and collaborative model on source code that isn't open source, and uh, someone in my comments actually pointed to a project that's like that, uh, you run the risk at some point that the um, copyright holders can say, eh, we don't like this, we're done, we're closing this, please, uh, you do not have the right to redistribute all the changes and things that you have made. Right. And that would be horrible, <laughs> you know, if you think about it. Yeah. The, the open source license gives you the um, confidence and the reassurance that nobody can do that to your modified version of that code or to your copy of that code. Well, and in, yeah, interesting distinction because you could also have collaborative development models that aren't open at all. You know, any, any distributed development team basically works like that. And it, it's just the yeah. idea that you allow anyone to contribute. Well, and an open you can also have an open source project that is very closed and, and not collaborative. And by closed, I mean they do the development, and then they toss it over the wall, and yeah. they say, here's the next release. It's under an open source license. Now, I want to be very careful here because I feel like this point was missed. I hate that model. Okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> I know that I'm kind of the poster child for that model, having worked on the ASP.NET MVC team. Right. But there were certain reasons that, you know, I'm bound by confidentiality that I can't really get too detailed into, but we couldn't do it the way I would have liked to. But I think we're seeing a, uh, I think we're seeing progress in that regard. NuGet was more what I wanted to do, which was uh, do all the development in a public source control repository and accept contributions yeah. and uh, and have public discussion. So we're doing discussions in Jabber, J-A-B-B-R.net, which is uh, a chat site built on top of SignalR. I know you guys did a show on that recently. Mm -hmm. We do our discussions there. We do them in Codeplex. We do them in GitHub. And then you know all the source code is actively developed in those public repositories. We don't do this thing where 
we write the code internally and then we ship it out there. And I say we because even though I left Microsoft, I'm still, uh, um, as far as the Outer Curve Foundation is concerned, I'm still the project lead for NuGet, and I'm still involved in the project. Right. Although the amount of time I spend on it certainly has decreased. <laughs> so, I mean, the way that Microsoft set up NuGet was the Outer Curve sort of owns it, and Microsoft was just a contributor to it. And they, the fact that they happened to be paying your salary while you were contributing – you know, it's just, that's just how it ended up working. But you you really look no different as than anybody else in that project. Uh, right. Yeah. So Microsoft is the you know funds the primary contributors, but there are non Microsoft contributors as well. And right. Uh, you know, honestly, from from an out of curve perspective, we'd love to see other companies who are gaining a benefit out of NuGet fund some developer time contributing to it. I think that would be really great. And that's sort of where a you know open source project becomes like a grown-up open source project, right? When you look mm -hmm. at things like, uh, you know, Linux, right? They have IBM and all these other uh, corporations funding full-time developers on it. And that's how those things can really uh, grow even bigger because, you know, free time's limited. It's very hard to spend a lot of free time on um, an open source project, and especially when there's so many interesting ones. Um, going back to SignalR, you know, one of the contributors to SignalR that a uh, non-Microsoft contributors used to be a NuGet contributor, but uh, you know, SignalR f uh, tickled his fancy a little more, and so now I'm jealous. But uh, <laughs> that's the type of thing that happens, you know. <laughs> sure, I mean, when you're a volunteer, you get to work on what you want to work on. Exactly. I exactly. I remember uh, uh, somebody asking me about Postgres, which was same sort of open contributor model uh, database. And largely the original contributors were guys who were former Oracle guys who were quite angry about Oracle and basically built Oracle the way they'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and But the downside to the volunteer model is you work on stuff that's fun, not on stuff that's necessarily essential to work. So Postgres, when I was using it, you were able to pass tables as parameters in stored procedures, something at that time SQL Server couldn't even do, but you couldn't mm -hmm. do an incremental backup. <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah, incremental backup's not fun to write. Which is why you sort of need these corporations to fund developers to work yeah. on these open source projects because, you know, they need that boring stuff. So they have the most to gain by investing a little bit of money and time into it. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. It's time to give away a uh, Telerik Ultimate Collection. Woohoo! $2,000 value to a lucky .NET Rocks fan club member. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to dotnetrocks.com slash fanpage.asbx or on the main page, click on the big get free stuff button in the upper right hand corner. Every show we're going to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection and today Ted Rogers is our winner. Congratulations, Ted. Woohoo. Congratulations, Woo Ted. Ted's Good job, Ted. a very happy guy. And you know we're going to be giving a lot of things away to fan club members, not the least of which is $5,000 worth of serious technology handpicked by Richard and Carl and in December of this year. Call so it a Christmas present. It's going to be a serious, serious Christmas present from your friends at .NET Rocks. So okay. uh, become a fan and you can win. Yeah. So, Phil, what do you think of the Microsoft ads taking aim at Google? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know... How to That's win friends question. and influence people. You learned it right here on .NET Rocks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. I don't know. I they're a little cheesy. But, yeah, I don't know. I think the the problem I have is, um, you know, Apple is an example of a company that's able to take shots at another company and then come out even cooler afterwards yeah. with their, uh, you know, commercials like making fun of uh, the "I'm a Mac, I'm a PC" commercials. Yeah. But when Microsoft does it, it just feels like your uncle at the disco. You know, like <laughs> trying to. Be- <laughs> Oh, man, that's funny. You know, the comparison uh, I've always made with these sorts of things is Honda. That Everybody compares themselves to Honda. Everybody takes shots at Honda. Honda never does that. They're the sort of the brand that people measure themselves against in cars. They know it. And and so they just don't do that. And in behavior, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I've never been too much of a fan of negative ads. But I, I've read some stuff that perhaps they, they are effective. So, you know, like, like it's hard to argue against effective, but at the same time, yeah, they just kind of rub me the wrong way. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess they do have some points. I guess it's very hard to argue with free, though. And, you know, that's one of the, the drivers of open source software is that uh, that most of the time it's it's free to use and free to modify and free to share Mm -hmm. and you know it's very hard to uh it's very hard to compete with free you know that's a that's kind of disruptive technology right there but do you think microsoft customers are increasingly google's customers and do you think that somebody that uses open office was going to pay for microsoft office and then said yeah well let me take a look at this instead or do you think they wouldn't have paid for it anyway yeah i'm i'm guessing they wouldn't have paid for it anyways um I read this uh, post a while ago that was really interesting about uh, an insight on why hasn't Microsoft produced Office for the iPad or whatnot. And, uh, you know, one person was saying that they're missing an opportunity by doing that. And and he writes that his wife had a better insight, which was, you know, what Microsoft missed was uh, an opportunity to try to convince the world that anyone even needs this productivity suite. Right. Yeah. And I think... You know, I find some aspects of Office actually very useful, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I'm learning that, uh, like, I don't use half of it as as much as I thought I would, right? Uh, for for most of the stuff I do, I, I really don't need a lot of it. And so, yeah, so I think what, you know, Google Docs has done really well is create this set of tools that's like, you know, for 99% of y'all, like, you know, if you're trying to create your shopping list, you probably don't need the full office, ultimate productivity pack, whatever they call it now. Right, right, right. You know, this web-based little brow- um, browser will do- be good enough. And, and I'm, you know, like, I don't even think I have Office installed on my machine yet. So, <laughs> yeah. and somehow I'm, you know, getting a lot of work done, so. Well, is, isn't the dominant product there Outlook? That's the thing that's always running all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I used to, I used to use that all the time. Um, these days, I just kind of use uh, Gmail. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you're, I'm, not- I, I'm outnumbered. I'm still using Outlook, but both of you are using Gmail. Yeah, I'm using it. I Well, yeah. I, I used Gmail because I was looking for a solution that didn't tie me down to one box. And that, that yeah. was the primary thing. And, and I actually tried, um, I guess it was Live Mail at the time, at the time. And I actually tried Live Mail, and there were features in there that I couldn't use, and I think it had to do with forwarding. 
that uh, forwarding wasn't supported. So I have two domains. I have pwop.com and I have franklins.net and Carl at pwop is forwarded to Carl at franklins.net. And that wasn't supported. So I, I went with Google Apps. But, uh, yeah. but yeah. yeah. And I, and I also start, you know, I started franklins.net with a mail server. I was using mdaemon and running that here in my office. And it was fine because the first copy that I bought was like 300 bucks and, Couple years went by out of it, and then they just started upping the price, and then it got to be like, you know, uh, $800 a year or something like that. And I was just, you know, now it's like, well, Gmail's free, and you can use your own domains. It's hard to argue with that. But, uh, that was the main thing for me is yeah, I but just it's wanted reading to get your off the mail. box. Carl is reading your emails. Yeah. Oh, I don't no. send anything by email that I wouldn't say to my mother face to face. So, you know. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, it's a good rule to live by. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. At some point, you're going to have to defend an email. There's no two ways around it. Yep, that's true. Never goes away. So NuGet's just going to keep going without you, huh? Uh, well, like I said, I'm still involved. Um, I don't spend as much time because I'm busy with other things, but um, I'm still involved, and yeah, it's going to continue to grow and hopefully thrive. I mean, I've been... Uh, Really enjoying. I, I really enjoyed working on it. I think that was one of my favorite products to work on over mm -hmm. there, and uh, we make heavy use of it um, at GitHub. So not not all of GitHub, but the 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 Windows team at GitHub. Right. Uh, we make heavy use of it. And are you like the benevolent dictator, or you <laughs> know, what's your role for for NuGet? <laughs> <laughs> so my role is project coordinator. Um, so that's the title from the outer curve side. So from the outer curves perspective, I'm the coordinator. You're now, a little dictator. Well, but realistically, most of the work is being done by uh, the NuGet team at Microsoft, right? They're, right. they're a group of contributors. And you know, one way to look at it is they're a group of contributors to this open source project, but uh, you know, they are full time on it, and they also are setting. Um, you know, helping to set a lot of the directions. So right. what I've been trying to focus more on is more of the high-level stuff, uh, looking at sort of what are the big picture things we want to implement and and also, you know, kind of the community relations. Uh, so, you, you know, contacting people when there's... Uh, I'll give you an example. When Log4Net recently uh, did something interesting where they changed the strong name on their assembly. So mm. they have two, two different assemblies, two different strong names of the same version. So I actually wrote a blog post saying, well... When you change the strong name, you change the identity of your assembly. That's a major breaking change. Mm, right. In fact, it's not a breaking change in a theoretical sense. We were getting all kinds of emails just you know, flooding our inbox saying, you know, I, I, I upgraded my project or you know, I'm, I'm using NuGet and now Log4Net is all you know, broken. I blame you, NuGet. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what we did was uh, – so I contacted those guys, uh, the, the owner of the package, who actually isn't himself part of the – Log4Net team, but mm -hmm. Log4Net being under an open source license, he was able to take it, redistribute it as a NuGet package. Yay, open source. 
So he um, he was very uh, uh, open to the idea of changing the package and giving incrementing the major version number. So it, it sucks in one level because the package version is not in line with the assembly version. But on the other level, uh, when you increment the major version, uh, that is uh, that semantically tells everybody, including NuGet, that th there's major breaking changes here, and uh, we would never, uh, you know, upgrade you to that version unless you explicitly do it. Okay, and and I, I can't find anybody who doesn't have anything but love for NuGet. Like it just seems it's one of those things that just seems to work. Oh, I can find people who don't, but <laughs> but. <laughs> But I think it has been very popular. We have a little page on the nuget.coplex.com where we show um, uh, a lot of the Twitter comments that we've received, and they've been very positive. And if you go to stats.nuget.org, you can see um, uh, you can see like how many package downloads we have. So oh, we're getting close to five million. So we're pretty excited about the uptake and and um, just the great libraries you can find on there. And, and the most interesting thing for me, I think, is uh, given that it's under an open source license, uh, it's under the Apache version 2 license, mm -hmm. uh, people are able to do whatever they want with the code. And what we've seen people do is build other products on top of it. Uh, Team City um, has integrated NuGet into their build software. Uh, there's uh, other sites such as MyGet, which provides private feeds. Uh, I learned about a new site uh, just the other day, but I'm uh, blanking on the name, and now they're going to hate me. But um, a site for doing, uh, you know, hosting private builds with, uh, you know, internal enterprise build build systems and such. Uh, yeah, you can see I'm well acquainted with it. <laughs> uh, and, but you know, the, the list goes on, and and it's uh, there's been quite a, a neat ecosystem building on top of NuGet. And then, nice. you know, there's some ideas that I have that I'd love to see, you know, br bring it further and integrate it with, you know, all kinds of different things. But uh, uh, we'll see what happens. You know, nothing you want to talk about, of course. Uh, not yet. Not yeah. yet. I, I need to. Uh, it, it's interesting. Since when I joined GitHub, I learned this little philosophy they have that it's better to ship software than talk about it. Nice. <laughs> so, Definitely. So, you know, they're really big on you know, shipping it and then talk about it, not talk about it and then, like, leave room for it not happening or yep. getting people's expectations all skewed towards what you actually deliver. So, yeah. So well, are we talking about the, you know, what actually happened to Vista, this overpromise, underdeliver scenario? Yes. You know, yes. I'm, I, I don't know that I'm a huge fan of everything that Steven Sanofsky is doing. But he certainly have focused on let's not do that again. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, I may not like the uh, the overly closed nature of it. I don't feel that secrecy was Jobs Steve Jobs' secret in delivering great products. Right. I think it was delivering great products <laughs> and yeah. creativity. Right. But I do think that that you know, to his credit, Sanofsky ships. He he yeah. gets the product delivered on time. Yeah. And and makes a product. It makes a good product, but it starts with not yeah. making promises in advance that you can't keep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, I don't want this conversation to end without having a chance to really see what you're doing at GitHub. So, can you tell us what your role is there? Uh, yeah, my role is to drink a lot of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> I like that job. Well said. <laughs> the, yeah, that was like. Oh wait, that was my interview where I drank a lot of scotch. <laughs> 
So I kid you not, when I joined, my offer letter gave me the title Windows Badass. That's great. That is my title. However, the CEO later said, you know, I know you deal a lot with Microsoft and other big companies that sometimes don't understand how we don't work. We don't have titles. We're not really big on titles. Um, and sometimes you need a title in order to get in the right meeting. So he's like, you know, do you want another title as well mm-hmm. so that, you know, you can pick which one you use? And so they gave me a title of vice president of product development. And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so because uh, I've heard of meetings at Microsoft where unless your title is a certain level, they won't you won't be allowed in that meeting. So now I can hopefully get in some of those meetings. <laughs> 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 and Windows Badass doesn't open a lot of doors? You would think, but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, so as you can imagine, GitHub's not very big on titles. They're not really big on command and control. Uh, in fact, there was a really great article on Wired.com, the website, uh, mm-hmm. just a couple days ago about uh, GitHub. So if you're interested in learning more about the culture and what GitHub's about, I, I highly recommend checking out that uh, article. It was, it was really good. And uh, it was cool about the articles that the, the actual um, article itself is hosted on GitHub, and you can issue pull requests. And uh, there was one pull request by Jimmy Bogart that you have to check out. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> it was my favorite pull request. But awesome. in any case, what I'm working on, um, as you mentioned, as I mentioned in my bio, is trying to make Git and GitHub appeal more to Windows and .NET developers. Um, so we're working on uh, several things that we think will make it not only easier, but more appealing for uh, .NET developers to um, work with Git and with GitHub. Awesome. And use GitHub as a place to host your code. Well, if you haven't already, check it out. So uh, we, uh, we make no guarantees, but we just, we just tell the truth. That's all we do. Thanks, <laughs> Phil. It's been great to have you. Thanks, guys. You know, you mentioned uh, AuraDev. So this year, I'll be at Codemania in New Zealand in March. Uh-huh. Uh, the um, Norwegian Developer Conference, or NDC, in June, and uh, Monospace in October. So yeah. uh, if you like or hate what I had to say, then come tell me. <laughs> All right. And until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember... Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 